to the Christadelphian Classics podcast brought to you by Wilderness Voice. Conviction and Conduct by I. Slip Collier. Part 1. The Philosophy of Faith. Chapter 1. Introductory. There can be no valid objection to the word philosophy, since its root meaning is love of wisdom. It has undoubtedly been greatly abused and applied to systems of thought so far removed from its foundation meaning that one can perhaps understand the attitude of those who discard the word altogether and think of it as permanently and necessarily associated with vain deceit. There is, however, a philosophy of truth. We could ill spare the word from our language and there's no more reason for expunging it on account of the way it's been misapplied than in the case of science or knowledge or wisdom or of love. True science is knowledge reduced to a system. True philosophy is systematized wisdom. Philosophy is greater than science just as wisdom is greater than knowledge. And as the true philosophy is more important, so a false philosophy is more dangerous. A scientist may confine himself to just one set of facts, like the naturalist described by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who devoted his life to the study of beetles and was so excited by an entomological discovery that he would give no thought to anything else. Even in a larger sense, true science simply accumulates and classifies a knowledge of facts. It does not often point the way of duty or show us how to be wise, and thus, by confining itself to the consideration of material facts, science always stands on a lower plane than a system of philosophy. It is of less importance when it is true, and it is less dangerous when it is false. A scientist may make his name great by discovering some hitherto unnoticed fact in connection with the life cycle of an insect, and an inventor may win fame by constructing a new engine of destruction for all nations to use against each other in war. In each of these cases, there may be a real addition to the sum of human knowledge and an actual achievement of human intellect but there is no suggestion of wisdom. And on close investigation, we might have to conclude that many whose praises have been sung throughout all the earth have failed to yield a fraction of service either to God or man. They have accumulated facts and reared harmful theories on them. They've discovered forces and worked mischief with them so that sometimes, even when they have been truly scientific, they have done more harm than good. We may thus observe a contrast between science and philosophy. Science may prosper within a limited area, whereas philosophy must be comprehensive. Science may do harm even when it's true. Philosophy can only be harmful when it is false. The mission of science is to find out what we may know. The great achievement of philosophy is to determine what we should do. There is a close relationship between the two words, but it's a relationship of cause and effect rather than partnership. 
The world's wisdom must necessarily be based on its knowledge and thus partial ignorance or misconception of fact will breed false philosophy. The law of logical gravitation is slow in its operations. It sometimes takes as long for the superstructure to fall after the foundation has been removed as it did to construct the building. But the process is a sure one nevertheless. Thus, many scientists may be at work in the various departments investigating and classifying, and insofar as their teaching is accepted by the world, the sum total of their conclusions will be woven into a system of true or false philosophy to bear fruit in another generation. Some time may elapse before the full fruition, but cause and effect may easily be traced. The settled conviction that God exists as the supreme life-giver and law-giver leads to the conclusion... Fear God and keep his commandments. The negation of all faith leads to the conclusion, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The word philosophy is generally used in a sense far too restricted. When we hear of a man who takes philosophic view of life, it generally means simply that he makes the best of his circumstances and accepts the inevitable adversity without bootless lamentation. Perhaps such a man deserves the title of philosopher for being wise when so many are foolish, but we must have a much wider understanding of philosophy than this. Even when the word is used in a less colloquial sense than just noted, its meaning is still too much restricted. If, in a biographical sketch, we read that some well-known man devotes his leisure hours to the study of philosophy, it will generally be safe to assume that the philosophy is of one particular type, and we may quite confidently conclude that, whatever it is, it has nothing to do with faith. Probably the great majority of people who even use the word in a serious sense would scoff at the bare idea connecting philosophy with faith. They think of a student of philosophy as being rather on the sceptical side, a man of expansive mind who has cast off simple faith with the putting away of childish things, while a man of faith is often despised as the ignorant representative of mental inertia who has received a creed from his moral teachers and clings to it simply because he knows nothing of the great world of science and philosophy beyond its borders. To speak of the philosophy of faith, therefore, seems to such observers a glaring anomaly almost as great as if we chose for our subject the light of darkness or the wisdom of foolishness. We may call to mind the fact that even such an apparent contradiction as this, as the last suggestion, might be chosen for a subject with some force of scriptural sanction. There is a way of wisdom which men account foolish, and the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the sight of God. 
Perhaps this general tendency to suppose that faith is incompatible with philosophy arises from the fact that the two words have been abused in totally different ways. Having advanced a few ideas regarding the true meaning of philosophy, it becomes necessary to give a similar attention to the word faith. It is said that a schoolboy wants to find faith as that quality which enables you to believe what you know is not true. And the fact that the joke has been repeated with zest seems to suggest that it has found a responsive echo in a good many hearts. We also have a lively recollection of an old atheist who attempted to give us a lesson in logic and whose favourite maxim was, What you believe you don't know, and what you know you don't believe. This man had a neat way of dealing with Christians. He would put the question, Do you know that there is a God? If his victim hesitated or replied that he would not go so far to say he possessed certain knowledge on the subject, then came the triumphant retort. This man claims to be a Christian and to engage in worship when he does not even know that there is a God. If, on the other hand, the Christian proved of a more sturdy type and claimed to know, the atheist felt equally triumphant in retorting, then there is no margin left for faith. These foolish criticisms would not be worth recalling to mind but for the fact that they very well express the general misconception regarding faith. It is true that the words believe and know have not the same meaning, but they must not be placed in antithesis. We suggested to our atheistic critic that his rule of logic placed him in a curious dilemma. If a man tells you something that you know is true, you will not believe him. The fact is, of course, that belief can be of many different grades of strength until it finally merges into knowledge. In connection with all the affairs of life, we might experience great difficulties in determining at what precise point we're justified in saying we know. But it is no reason for making the use of the word know impossible. And in those matters where the word faith is appropriate, surely it shines the brightest when belief has merged into knowledge. How can we manifest greater faith in a friend than when we are able to say, I know he'll be true? The human mind, however, is under such severe limitations that we can at least understand the attitude of those who hesitate to claim absolute knowledge of anything. The unpardonable mistake is to cite this universal difficulty as if it were only applicable in the connection with one particular subject. It's not merely a theological dilemma, it belongs to the whole realm of human thought. This fact can hardly be emphasised too strongly, for the subject of faith is continually being made the centre of a mere war of words. Unbelievers do not often state the case so boldly and foolishly as the old atheists whose lucubrations we have called to mind, but the same kind of argument is often used. The same obstinate determination to see difficulties in the way of Christianity, which, as a matter of fact, are common to every subject. The world is full of faith. Business could not be conducted. 
Society could not exist without it. It is of many degrees, varying from the slight balance of probabilities, which hardly deserves the name, to the conviction which amounts to knowledge. If any man still persists that faith and knowledge are incompatible or that there is practically nothing we can really know, do not argue with him. There is nothing less profitable or more contemptible than a war of definitions. Let it be granted, if he likes, that we cannot in the nature of things know for certain that there is a God or that the Bible is true. He cannot know that any part of history is genuine or that any countries exist that he has not visited. He does not know whether his wife is unfaithful or his dearest friend a scamp. Indeed, the logical outcome of agnosticism is the position of the supreme egoist who doubts everything except the fact of his own existence. He knows that in some form he exists, but all the world beside may be a figment of his imagination and all the events of his life a long dream. Reasonable men, however, will not sanction such an extreme idea and they come to recognise that it is sheer waste of time and of breath to quarrel about definitions. Men may frequently be proved wrong even when they're most positive. It may be almost impossible to find evidence for any fact sufficient in absolute logic to justify the words, I know, but for all practical purposes we may often possess a faith which amounts to complete conviction. We may feel so positive that natural laws will remain unbroken that we cheerfully stake our lives on the issue. We may be so sure that the friend who has been faithful for years will remain true that we leave our honour in his charge without a tremor. And we may be so satisfied as to the consistent continuance of cause and effect that we devote our lives to a labour which will be worthless if those laws should change or our reading of them prove faulty. What is all this but faith? We entertain certain convictions on a basis of reason and we guide or attempt to guide our lives accordingly. A famous poet voiced the popular sentiment when he described Christian faith as believing when we cannot prove. If this is intended to imply that Christian faith is in a special and peculiar sense unprovable, the line is false. If it only refers to proof in the absolute sense, it can be applied to any subject. Nothing is proved while the work remains incomplete. An inventor at work constructing a flying machine may have absolute faith that he's working on the right lines. He may be able to demonstrate to his perfect satisfaction that his machine will fly, but the point will not be proved in the absolute sense until it does fly. A chemist may mix certain elements and feel perfect confidence as to the effect, but in the absolute sense... His experiment can only be proved by the result. And in the same way, 
the faith of a Christian that God will perform all that is promised in the Holy Scripture can only be proved when the promises are fulfilled. If we are to insist on such a narrow use of the words know and prove, we must be consistent in our application of them. Each investigator may feel, however, that to him the case is proved already and only needs realisation to prove it to the world. In connection with all subjects, that is what is meant by true faith. A belief in what we cannot prove to the world on the basis of reasonable evidence. A conviction regarding truths which are not yet realised or, as the Apostle puts it, the matter, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our subject then should open a promising field. By philosophy, we mean a systematical wisdom which takes a comprehensive survey of all available facts and on the basis of what we know, attempts to determine what we should do. By faith, we mean the reasonable hope and confidence reposed in God, who has himself been faithful and who in past history has given us assurance for the future. By combining the two words, we imply the proposition that when wisdom has surveyed all that men know or think they know, it brings us back to a simple faith in God and his promises. We're not merely to marshal Christian evidence and show forth reasons for believing the Bible, but writing as those who have some knowledge of the subject, we may make a general review of the position, not simply as defenders or expounders of one particular proposition with all the onus of proof upon us and prohibited from examining the difficulties of mere negation, but with full power to investigate anything we may say. Truth lies somewhere. Where is it? We have life and certain powers. How shall we best make use of them? We want to demonstrate that a man of simple Christian faith may be a philosopher, probably even to show that a true philosopher must be a man of simple Christian faith.